Father, we've just sung that you are our tower of refuge and that you're where our help comes from. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. And we pray, Lord, that as we reflect on this issue of peace today, that we would find our peace in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do please sit down. I don't know whether you noticed the background on the slides there. They were the autumn leaves falling. Did you see that? I don't know about you, but I seem to spend an awful lot of time picking up leaves in my garden. <laughs> There's a church in Aldershot that um, has a banner every, every so often. It changes about every couple of months. And the latest one says, Autumn leaves, God doesn't. <laughs> Hence we can sing, Our God Reigns. Which is just as well, really, because... In the midst of around 42 military conflicts around the world, along with living in the minefield of a social-cultural war across the West, these are worrying times. It's difficult to overstate the horrors of what happened on October the 7th, and I have to say I did hesitate slightly before sharing this with you, but there's a recording of a phone call made by a Hamas terrorist to his parents. It captures a human drama as old as recorded history. It's a son seeking approval from his parents for his prowess in battle. Hi, Dad, the son shouts. I'm talking to you from the kibbutz. Open up my WhatsApp and you'll see all those I've killed. Look how many I've killed with my own hands. Your son killed Jews. Dad, I'm talking to you from a Jewish woman's phone. I killed her and I killed her husband. I killed ten with my own hands. Dad, ten with my own hands. The whole time his father is repeating Allah Akbar. And a little later the young man says, Mum, your son is a hero. We live in a world of few heroes, but plenty of monsters. From mobs parading on the streets of London calling for Israel to be wiped off the map, to the many millions engaging in vitriol under the cover of today's social media. But sadly, there's nothing new in any of this. Enmity and rancor stretch back into prehistory. In about 3,500 recorded years of history, there have only been a couple of hundred years of worldwide peace. And the violence, of course, starts in Genesis. Immediately after Adam and Eve declared that they would be their own gods, thank you very much, and eat of any tree that caught their fancy. Exiled from Eden as a result, their son Cain, incensed that God favoured Abel's sacrificial offering, turned a deaf ear to God, urging him not to sin, and murdered his younger brother, only to become a restless wanderer on the earth. And there's been little evidence of humanity wanting to live in peace ever since. Earlier this year in Nagorno-Karabakh, Ethnic Armenians were surrounded by troops from Azerbaijan and endured a food, fuel and medical blockade before a full-scale military attack forced a mass exodus of the ethnic Armenians from their ancestral lands. A genocide took place in plain sight, whilst the mainstream media in the West looked away. In Pakistan, Christian pastors are being shot by Islamists with hundreds of churches and Christian homes and businesses being destroyed by orchestrated mob violence. 
Elsewhere in Pakistan, Taliban jihadists murdered 132 Muslim children at a school, burning a teacher alive in front of her students. And the violent divisions in India between Hindus and Muslims are getting worse. And alongside of this, of course, hardly mentioned in the media, the war in Ukraine continues, awakening memories of trench warfare and casualty levels not seen since World War I. That war, you may recall, was going to be the war that ended all wars. Politicians and journalists who say that we must ensure these things never happen again clearly do not understand the fallen nature of humanity. At the same time, torn apart about concerns of identity and what that means, the West has concluded that every moment of who we are is to be found in the instantaneous gratification of every possible hedonistic whim. Declaring that we are only what our emotions say we are and that we can define ourselves completely through those emotions is the ultimate extension of narcissistic liberalism. And it fails to understand that a pathway marked out by nothing but self leads to desperation and misery. I think I've quoted Roger McGuff before here, the great Liverpudlian poet. He once wrote that all the worlds are soap and all the men and women merely extras. Parodying Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man, he sees us all as but bit players drifting in and out of the action in life. And there's no doubt that we do live in a world that does seem to reduce everything to the level of a soap opera. Celebrities rule okay. The lives of so many, including their morality and their spirituality, is governed by the goings-on of the stars of political theatre, Hollywood stage and screen, the catwalk or the sports field. Locked into this celebrity culture, success is measured by what we have, not who we are. Image is glorified over substance and character, and everything, including relationships, can be rebranded and relaunched. Countless millions, their impoverished souls, feasting on the crumbs snatched from the tables of the celebrities, surrender themselves and their families gullibly to this brave new world, watching and dreaming of what they too might become if they could only join them. God is no longer necessary or relevant as the world attempts to create a master morality of its own. And the result, as Os Guinness says, is that we live in a world of lies and hype and spin, moving values dictated by circumstances, not by eternal perspectives. Unable to distinguish good from evil or hate from love, morality is outsourced to politics and the market, reducing it to a set of choices in which right or wrong have no meaning beyond personal satisfaction. Truth is relative. Lying is no longer lying if you're telling your own personal truth. Independent and totally free to create our own values, we can get up to whatever we want and damn the consequences. Reinforced by a media that plays all of this out in our newspapers and on our screens every minute of every day, constantly telling us that the world is imploding and that we're all going to be dead by Friday, the result is that extraordinary numbers of people, particularly our young, are drowning in anxiety and anger, cynicism, with record numbers suffering mental illnesses and hundreds of thousands off work being sick. Being taught to do nothing but think about their immediate needs and to do their own thing 
with no foundation to hang on to other than themselves, they are being led nowhere and living with a continuous sense of melancholy and impending doom. Peace and security, order and decency are only as solid as the ground that they stand on. And we need something solid on which to stand. But how do we find meaning amongst the turmoil? How do we find peace in such a world? How do we find light in all of that darkness? Let's hear what Jesus has to say about it. Anne is going to come and share a reading with us. reading is from St. John chapter 14 verses 25 to 27 and then from chapter 16 verse 33. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I live with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And then, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world. You will have trouble, but take heart I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anne. Chapters 14 to 16 in John's Gospel come immediately after Jesus predicts his betrayal and Peter's cowardice, and before his final prayers for himself, his disciples, and all believers and before his subsequent arrest, his trial, and his execution. Combining teaching with remembrance, warning, and encouragement, he prepares the disciples to hold fast in difficult times, not just during his impending arrest and execution, which will throw them into grief and devastating insecurity, but in the persecution that will follow. Telling them to not let their hearts be troubled, he assures them that he is the way and the truth and the life, and the only way to the Father, and that he will prepare a place for them in his Father's house. Promising the coming of the Holy Spirit, as we heard, the Counselor and the Spirit of Truth, who will both teach them and remind them of everything that he has said to them, he adds, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid urging them to stay rooted in him as branches are rooted to the vine, he warns them that the world will hate them as it hated him and that they will be persecuted. But he also assures them that their grief will turn to joy, ending with those words we heard at the end of chapter 16. I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, 
I have overcome the world. But what is this peace? And how, when we see the world as it is today, can Jesus possibly have overcome it? As is always the case, Jesus' words are carefully chosen. Being troubled in one's heart means being in anxiety, fear, and despair. Being heartbroken as a result of the things that life throws at us, which it will. But the enjoyment of his peace is not inconsistent with enduring trouble. In the same way that a soldier going to war can't promise himself continual peace on the battlefield, or a sailor committing himself to the sea for a long voyage can't promise himself nothing but fair and calm weather, so we Christians can't promise ourselves a life free from trouble and afflictions. The warning that in the world you will have trouble applies to all of us. The form of the trouble will inevitably vary. We will all have days of sweet sunshine, but also nights of gloomy darkness as we encounter and try to deal with the temptations of the devil and the realities of this world, along with life disappointments, pain, sickness, loss, and of course death. Jesus himself faced all these things, but there is no evidence of him ever losing heart, even in Gethsemane. Acknowledging the reality of fear and despair, he brings something different to worldly comfort or even happiness. He brings a confident rest. A rest he talks about in chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ's peace isn't about an absence of war or conflict. His peace is one that the fallen world doesn't understand because it's a hope and reassurance that goes well beyond what the world can offer. It provides balance, a divine force behind and within us. It is peace in Him. In Him as in a tree with its roots deep in the soil, as a branch in the vine, as the residence in a house. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. We are in him when we trust him as we trust a ship's compass. Adjusting itself to keep firm amidst all the battering of the sea, a compass is a part of the ship's structure and feels every motion of the restless waves, but it always keeps pointing true to the destination. Amidst the gales of life, amidst the waves, the howling wind, the deafening noise of the world around us, our souls need a compass in order to stay on track. We need a place where the quietness and the stillness stand in stark contrast to the roar outside, where the noise of battle and shouts of defeat can't penetrate, and we can take heart and find freedom from fear and panic or doubt in a peace which is permanent, guaranteed, and eternal. In the Pitti Palace in Florence, there are two pictures which hang side by side. One represents a stormy sea with its wild, wild waves and black clouds and fierce lightning flashing across the sky. 
In the waters a human face is seen, wearing an expression of the utmost agony and despair. The other picture also represents a sea tossed by as fierce a storm with as darker clouds. But out of the midst of the waves a rock rises against which the waters dash in vain. In the cleft of the rock are some tufts of grass and green herbage with sweet flowers. And amidst a dove is seen sitting on her nest, quiet and undisturbed by the wild fury of the storm. The first picture represents the sorrow of the world when all is helpless and despairing. The other represents the sorrow of the Christian. The storm is no less severe, but nestling in the bosom of God's unchanging love, those in Christ can find eternal, perfect peace, held secure in the lee of the storm. In the voyage of life, there is always a harbour of refuge and shelter from the wind. Now, if Jesus was nothing more than a man, then there's a great deal of presumption, pride and egotism going on here. I went to see the new Ridley Scott film, Napoleon, on Friday. We can imagine Napoleon speaking like this when he'd crushed the nations between, beneath his feet and shaped the map of Europe to his will. Indeed, at one point in the film, somebody actually says that Napoleon is the only hope for peace in the world. Reminiscence of Pax Romana, or British peace in our empire. Or Alexander, when he had rifled the palaces of Persia and led her monarchs captive. But who is speaking to us here in the Gospels? It's a Galilean, one who wears a peasant's garment and travels virtually nowhere. One who is about to be betrayed by his own flawed followers, yet casting an eye to his cross with all its pain, he declares, I have overcome the world. How? How has he overcome the world? He overcame by the power of his truth. He never modified it, allowing it to fight and conquer the world's falsehood. He overcame by the constancy of his infinite love, mixing with the lost and the lonely, the publicans, the Samaritans, the sinners. He overcame the world's malice, condemnation, and rejection. He overcame it by his calmness, by the unselfishness of his aims, by never abusing his power, by his fearlessness of the world's elites, confronting them and not failing and not falling for their worldly philosophies, by asking questions of the religious teachers, the Pharisees, the skeptical intellectualists, and the Sadducees that none of them could answer and giving answers to their questions that none of them could question. But chiefly, and most importantly, he overcame by rising from death. The world never had a better friend, but he was at war with it openly and persistently, and it crucified him. But the resurrection was a triumph over the power that killed him. He conquered the world by his doctrine, his moral beauty, his death, and in view of his Easter victory, he is able to say, I have overcome the world. On the cross, he declares that it is finished. Not, I am finished. He overcame not for himself, but for us, his people, so that fighting by his side here on earth, we might reign with him above. 
If he was hated and persecuted, how can we, his followers, escape? As the world treated him, so in some form of measure, it will treat all of us who are faithful to him and who tread in his steps. If we're going to live as Christians, speaking and living out Christ's truth, then we will have to, in various ways, bear his cross and endure the tribulations of this world. But his words bring courage. We can take heart, be confident and of good cheer because his conquest brings victory. And his conquest brings the peace that, as Paul says in chapter 4 of his letter to the young church in Philippi, transcends everything and will guard our hearts and minds. This peace is not for us to create, but for us to discover. Discover through the power of the Holy Spirit a personal relationship with a holy God through Jesus Christ. His peace is not about an easy pain or crisis-free life, a life with no hurt or loss. It's about acknowledging the reality of these things, and yet with him as our source of strength, finding the courage and determination to face up to them. In him, we find our identity and our purpose, and we do not grow weary and lose heart. This is not some superstition. It's not some primitive defense against the certainty of a life of anxiety followed by death. It's not an opt-out from reality. It's not the opium of the people. It's the call to true peace. McGough finishes his poem by saying that the last scene of all that ends this strangeful event, eventful history is mere oblivion. But if oblivion is our soul's end, then there is no light in the darkness, no destiny by which to set a compass for the journey. And if that's right, then the world is simply a stage, a giant TV screen, just a soap opera. And the stars and the celebrities should indeed be our gods. But the world isn't a soap opera. And we are much more than just bit players who drift in and out of the action. We are men and women made in the image of God. And we belong to a kingdom that is universal, eternal, and unbounded. Knowing that and believing that and holding on to that, we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, of our faith and receive his peace. With him as our compass, we can head towards Jerusalem, the shining city on the hill, the city of God. We can move away from the darkness of a fallen world to the light of the shining city. And we can move away from hell to heaven. You'll have noticed that the Christmas decorations are already going up, along with adverts for the latest must-haves all over the place, like the Daily Times magazine cover yesterday declaring, "'Tis the season to shop." In a world that has taken Christ out of Christmas, we as his followers can take heart as we hear in the coming weeks, yet again, those unforgettable words from chapter 9 from Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Amen.